Welcome to episode 65 of Pub Crawl, a publishing podcast about reading, writing, books, and occasionally booze. I'm your host, Kelly Van Sant. I am a literary agent and a publishing contracts expert. And I'm your co-host, S.J. Jones, called J.J. I'm a New York Times bestselling author and erstwhile editor. We are both contributors with the Publishing Crawl blog, and together we have over 15 years of industry experience. And today we are going to be starting a new series for the summer, and we're going to talk about archetypes. (laughs) Yeah, we went on a digression last week about... Mm -hmm. Sure did. (laughs) ...about archetypes, but as we mentioned then, Kelly and I just like talking about them, and it is sort of fun for us to kind of go through and dissect them. So we decided that we were going to extend that conversation over the summer and sort of, uh, one, this week we're going to give you kind of an overview of archetypes and stereotypes and tropes and sort of what they are, how we want to define them or don't define them since it is hard to define. Um, and then kind of delve into sort of archetypal narratives, um, kind of in future episodes and we talk about what stories uh, are examples of these archetypal narratives etc etc but for now we're going to do kind of an a broad overview of archetypes stereotypes and tropes Mm -hmm. so i guess the first question that i want us to sort of pick apart is the difference between an archetype and a stereotype and whether or not we think there is one hmm whether or not there is one, that's a really interesting question. Cause I think my gut answer is to say, of course, they're different things. An archetype and a stereotype are different. But then the next logical question is, well, how are they different? And I think that is right. <laughs> more difficult to articulate. Um, I think an archetype is, you know, as we kind of had mentioned last week, the archetype is the classic, um, simplest, most distilled, purest version of something. And um, I think an archetype becomes a stereotype um, when... I don't want to say stereotypes are perversions of archetypes. That's not really the right word. But it's it's like a, a laziness or a leaning too heavily on archetypes, but even then this is more about like execution than about what a stereotype is. So I'm like talking in circles around the thing instead of defining the thing. So what would you say? I think functionally there actually is no difference between an archetype and a stereotype. It is in fact in the execution. And I think that an archetype allows for broad, like a an archetype creates room in the character's portrayal, if that makes sense, whereas a stereotype reduces the character portrayal. Mm. And because the, the, the thing that people always talk about when it comes to stereotypes is that you're just sort of flattening a character to sort of just like a very simple, basic, two-dimensional portrayal. Whereas I th- I feel like an archetype does the opposite in which something is archetypal, but that's because everything it everything the character encompasses are sort of part of the archetype. Mm. Or rather the archetype embraces all those myriad facets of, of a character. So that's kind of where I stand on the archetype and the stereotype. I think it does come down to the execution. I also think it is sort of like an inside-out versus an outside-in thing. Mm -hmm. Because I feel like an archetype is only discovered afterwards. Whereas a stereotype is thought of first and then not entirely fleshed out. But Mm -hmm. that might just be me. That just might be like my approach to writing. Yeah. Well, I like the perspective that stereotypes are reduce are reductive um that they reduce you know a character whereas archetypes in a way can enhance a character i like kind of that way of thinking about it um 
And I, I mean, I do agree that it really is about the way that you execute these ideas that, you know, the same idea can be archetypal or stereotypical. And it's kind of in the execution of that idea that we, that we think about it, you know, positively or negatively, which isn't to say too, that stereotypes are always inherently negative. You know, I think, um, we talk a lot about when characters are stereotypical or storylines are stereotypical, you know, that kind of has a negative connotation to it. Um, and I don't think that's necessarily always true. I think, you know, stereotypes exist for a reason. Um, you know, these are, these are common tropes or ideas or, or things that people have been exploring for, you know, centuries. And there's still always something interesting there because ultimately, you know, all stories are more or less about the human experience. And that's always interesting. Um, so I don't think that having archetypes or stereotypes in your book is inherently bad, but I think the execution of it does really make the difference. I agree. And it, there is that saying, too, that all stereotypes are rooted in a grain of truth, right? And for every stereotypical portrayal that of a character or it's really a stereotypical portrayal of a character is reductive of an entire group. So it's like um it's like when you have a movie and it's like ninety nine percent male characters and you have like the one female character. Mm-hmm. And almost who's everything, the stand-in for all women? For all women, and anytime you have just one character who is emblematic of an entire group of people, that's when you run into problems of quote stereotype, because you know as we'd said before, stereotypes do have a, a grain in truth, and but if you only have one person and there's not other portrayals of this group of people to flesh out the portrayal of of these people then you have a stereotypical portrayal even if it's true or even if you know somebody who falls into this stereotype or even if etc 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 so i do think that's why we say it does come down to a matter of execution because a good portrayal of a character will be fully rounded with all the with with both stereotypical aspects and aspects of the personality that defy these quote stereotypes. So that's why I mean that I don't think there's a functional difference really. Although I do still think that an archetype is the broadest category you can put something into because a stereotype is pretty specific to mm. a type of person or a type of or like a group of people, whereas an archetype encompasses pretty much everyone. Because you mm-hmm. can, like, like you know, we go back to the chosen one archetype. The chosen one archetype can be applied to anyone, regardless of gender, of culture, of ethnicity, of whatever, that the chosen one can be anyone. But when you have a stereotypical portrayal of a queer person, or a stereotypical portrayal of an Asian person, or a black person, that you know that's much, that's a little bit more specific and a little bit more narrow than an archetype. So I that's I mm-hmm. think the archetype is the broadest and then you kind of have a stereotype and then you have tropes. Mhm. So I think we had previously defined trope as like a building block, I guess, building blocks mm-hmm. of stereotypes and archetypes and things like that. And uh, we did get a great question on Twitter earlier, uh, right before we started recording, from Catherine Locke. Mm-hmm. When do you deliberately decide to invert a trope? How do you tackle that? Where do you start? So here's my thing that I want to say first. The thing about a trope and whether or not to invert a trope. <laughs> An inversion of a trope is inherently a trope itself. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Um, so there's, that's kind of that thing. So it's like, if you go to, uh, you know, we always talk about tvtropes.com, but if you go to tvtropes.com, you're going to find every single possible trope that people have come up with and every single possible inversion of said trope that people have Mm -hmm. come up with. So they're kind of flip sides and it's, I think one is simply just more common than the other. Mm Mm-hmm. 
Um, but to go back to Catherine's question, um, to Katie's question, so when do you deliberately decide to, to uh, invert a trope? I think there can be a couple of different reasons for inverting tropes depending on the place the trope has in your narrative and what you're hoping to do with it. You know, I think if you are using a trope um, to tell, if that's your main story is going to be built around this trope and you're choosing um, to invert it, then I think the first question to ask yourself is why? Um, Why do I want to invert this trope? Why is that more interesting to me than the trope you know, straightforward. Um, and what does inverting that trope, what kind of ripple effects does that have on my characters and on my world? Because so like one of the easiest things that I can think of, um, for an example is gender flipping. So you could tell the same story, you know, with, you know, male and female characters, for example, and then, um, gender flip it so that the story is exactly the same. The events are the same, um, except the roles are reversed and the character that was male is now female and vice versa. Um, and I think that that's a really tempting trope for people to play with. And it's really interesting, but I also think that it's not enough to just, um, swap genders or, um, you know, play with genders in that way, because now that you've reversed the roles of these genders within the story, so let's say Beauty and the Beast, right? And the Beauty and the Beast story, typically beauty is female and the beast is male. Um, if you're going to gender flip that story and have the beast be female and beauty be male, um, you could just straightforwardly tell that story, right? And everything is the same and it's just, you know, whatever. And and on the surface level, I guess that's mildly interesting, but it's much more interesting. I think if you're going to flip that trope to examine, okay, this beast is female now. And how does that play it? Like, how does her being female inform her character? How is that different? How is the experience of a female beast different than a male beast and vice versa? Like, if you really examine those um, situations that the characters are in and how their gender would cause them to interact in the world and in the things that are happening to them. Um, and I think it's really easy when you invert tropes, whether it's gender flipping or any other kind of trope inversion that you're doing to just kind of invert the trope and then carry on as you normally would. And I think that it's much more effective and um, compelling if you actually examine why you have inverted this trope and what that actually means in the context of your story. Yeah. And I'm not somebody who decides to invert a trope Mm -hmm. or I don't necessarily make these sorts of conscious decisions before I write because I am a pantser. Um, I think when do you decide to deliberately in- invert a trope you, is when you have something to say about that trope, I think. Mm-hmm. When you take a trope and you want to deconstruct it, you want to examine it and examine why it is the way it is or why it shows up in the stories that it shows up in, then I think you sh- that's when you deliberately, when you have something to say, essentially. when that's That's it. Like, if you just decide that you're going to do it for the sake of inverting it, that doesn't add anything to the dialogue that doesn't add anything to our understanding of of this trope so i think being intentional about it in that i know why i'm going to do this is more important than deciding when to do so i think that's probably probably more important um and the second part of the question was let me pull it back up again uh, how do you tackle that? Where do you start? So, uh, again, as I would said before, it's going back to why you decided to do it. What mm-hmm. do you have to say about it? And when you sort of distill what you have to say about the trope, is I think that's where you start. And I think that's how you start is, okay, so you want, say you want to invert the bad boy trope. What do you have to say about the bad boy? Um what do you what the role the bad boy plays or do you want to give depth to the bad boy or do you want to deconstruct why it is the bad boy is appealing um you can there are a lot of things you can do with those sorts of inversions of the trope of the bad boy 
you just have to sort of figure out why you're doing it and kind of begin accordingly. So that's kind of what I have to say about um, inverting tropes anyway. And well, here's the other thing. When is something a trope and when is something a cliche? Hmm. I mean, are cliches different than stereotypes? Are stereotypes a kind of cliche? Like, I feel like, I feel like they seem similar to me, where maybe one is a kind of category within another. Um, you know, I think cliches are ultimately they're things that you reach for. It's like a shorthand. It's like you can put this thing in here and everybody knows what it means. And so when you drop this in your story, it will signify something to your audience, but it's not an authentic emotion or an authentic experience. It's like a shorthand. It's, it's kind of laziness. It's like you reach for something easy because everybody understands what it means and what it does and what it signifies. And, and so you kind of put it in there, um, instead of doing the actual work to get there, you know, organically or authentically on your own kind of is how I think about them. I don't think that people always use cliches deliberately though. I don't think everyone is sitting there going, well, I don't feel like working hard on my stories. I'm going to drop these cliches in. I think there, there's something we're all familiar with. We all know that shorthand and speak that shorthand. And so we can, you know, it's easy for us you know, to reach for, um, you know, every commercial ever has cliches in it because, you know, advertisers have 30 seconds to get you to feel something about their product. And so they know that if they show you certain relationships between people or certain events or, you know, dogs or whatever, like that, you're going to be more, you're going to have an emotional response to whatever their ad is about. Um, you know, so I think cliches are effective to an extent, but also not because we all recognize them. We all know them. We can identify them out in the wild. When you see a cliche, you know, and you feel kind of cheated. <laughs> I, I think do. anyway, I think it actually has, again, it has to do with execution because I don't actually have a problem with cliche providing that it's done well. Um, it will still make me feel whatever the cliche is initially intended to make me feel. And the other thing is, I feel as though cliche, things become cliche. Things don't start out cliche, things become cliche. But from, I think, sheer overexposure, that's why things become cliche. It, they don't, like, a trope in and of itself isn't cliche. It started out one way, but because people have decided to use it over and over again, that's when it becomes cliche. Um, and that's, I think that's just changing culture. That's changing tastes. That's changing, you know, just our collective agreement about what we want to read or see in fiction. So, you know, certain things we get tired of and certain things we want to see more of. So I think cliche over is something that develops over time. And as I said before, there are stories that are predictable to me, and yet I don't care because the execution is good. It makes me feel the things that I want it to make me feel or that the author was intending to make me feel. And it's sort of like Star Wars, right? You know, Star Wars has become cliche. A lot of the things in Star Wars have become cliche, and yet... I don't care, you know, it still makes me feel excited or happy or, you know, it just, it, it, I get caught up in the story anyway, or even like The Force Awakens, which is <laughs> pretty much a, like almost beat by beat and, and, um, villain wise, kind of a retread of A New Hope. And yet I didn't care because even though a lot of the storylines are cliche, there are certain things that The Force Awakens does and presents to us in a new way that I found refreshing and interesting enough to keep my attention. Um, so Saba says, what are your thoughts on writing retellings? How far can, should writers veer from canon? I think... 
that I love retellings personally. Um, I think they're great. I also think they're really popular right now. I see a lot of them in my query inbox and, um, you know, that is interesting and, and I like that. I'm seeing some cool stuff there. Um, I think that if you're going to do a retelling that you should bring something unique to the table. And so I would expect people to change the story or, or, you know, kind of veer off, um, in some way to enhance it, um, or put a new perspective on it or, you know, twist it or, or use it to tell new stories. You know, I expect a retelling to be more than just a straightforward retelling. Um, and as far as how far away you can veer from it, I think that you can veer as far as you want from, you know, kind of the canonical fairy tale or folklore or, you know, whatever it is that you are choosing to retell, um, classic literature, whatever. I think you can veer pretty far, but at some point it stops being a retelling and becomes inspired by or, you know, um, with, 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 I can't use words today. It's really hot it's, also, you guys. So we're just kind of like trying to it get is. our sluggish brains to keep I'm going. I'm sorry. Um, I think at some point it stops being a retelling and becomes something else. And I think that's fine too. I think that, you know, um, Winter Song, for example, has lots of, inspirations that it takes from the labyrinth or from, um, beauty and the beast or from, you know, some of these myths about the underworld, but I wouldn't call it a retelling of any of those things necessarily. Possibly labyrinth would be the closest, but even then I think there's so much that you've kind of done with it that it's no longer really that story anymore. And so you wouldn't, and, and winter song isn't called a, a labyrinth retelling. That's not how it's sold. Well, People depends. Say, like, inspired by. <laughs> well, true, true. It's not like on the cover, like no. a retelling of the labyrinth. No, and I think it also depends on this one. I feel like depends on personal taste, because sometimes you want a very straightforward retelling, and sometimes you want something that's a little bit more loosely inspired by. Mm. I think that by canon. I think adhering to the beats of the story is where I would say I think that's that's the baseline of a retelling. You should adhere to the beats of the original if you're if you're going to retell an original uh, retell something else. Everything else in my opinion is kind of up for grabs. You can you can adhere closely to the original characterization if you'd like. Or you could take, you know, put your own spin on the characters or whatever. But I think the beats of the story should be pretty similar from the original to your retelling of it. And there are plenty of books that are really faithful to the original that I love. For example, I, I think I've trotted this one out before, um, Beauty by Robin McKinley. I love that book. And that book doesn't do anything new with the story of Beauty and the Beast. It's pretty much straightforward. I think the only slight variation from the original fairy tale to Robin McKinley's book is the fact that Beauty's sisters aren't terrible. <laughs> like, you know, they're nice. They're, you know, they have a very loving relationship. Um, but everything else, pretty straightforward. She goes off to the castle to save her dad's life. And the Beast is a nice dude. He just happens to look like a hideous furry monster, you know, like, and she sees past the beastly exterior to get to the nice person within, which is pretty much what the original fairy tale was about. The original fairy tale didn't have the beast as this horrible human, not human, but like this horrible monster, both physically and personality wise. He was just monstrous to look at. Um, and so that's, Beauty, but then there are other retellings of Beauty and the Beast, like Disney, for example. Disney's Beauty and the Beast, the Beast character is beastly in personality in addition to being beastly in physical form. 
And that's a, that's a little bit of a veering from the original fairy tale. So, but the beats are still the same. A girl has to sacrifice herself to a monster to save her father's life. That's it. And then over the course of this voluntary captivity, she falls in love with him. Um, is able to see past the monstrous exterior to the kind soul in, in within. That's the basic story of Beauty and the Beast. And within that, you can be as creative as you want. You could set Beauty and the Beast in space. You could set it anywhere you want. You could make, you can gender flip the characters. You can make them the same gender. You can do whatever you want with the framework that's that. But I think to make something a recognizable Beauty and the Beast retelling, you should adhere to the beats and like, one or two other hallmarks of whatever it is you're retelling. Otherwise, you're just going to say it's inspired by. And that's fine, too. I like plenty of things that are inspired by. I guess this kind of goes back a little bit to our adaptation podcast, like what we think is a faithful adaptation or what we think is a transformative adaptation. I think, you know, we could probably link to those in our show notes and you guys can go back and listen to those. And I think but a lot of the principle holds... Uh, for retellings, faithful or otherwise. So I think that wraps up um, kind of our general overview of archetypes, stereotypes, and tropes. If uh-huh. you guys have any further questions, of course, you can let us know what you think of that. Um, you know, whether or not you think we got it wrong. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Very likely, since I'm, I can't brain today. Yeah, both Kelly and I are, are struggling a little bit right now. But um, So yeah, definitely let us know what your thoughts are about this. I mean, of course, we will be delving further into more specific archetypes later on, but this was just kind of Mm -hmm. our basic opinion about the overview of of archetypes, stereotypes, and tropes. So Mm -hmm. um, we're going to shake up the order a little bit and actually answer some questions that we got uh, on the Ask Pub Crawl hashtag. Yeah. So do you want to answer the uh, ask the first one, Kelly? Sure. So this one is from Nancy, and she says, when offered representation, is it common to do a phone interview? What should an author ask the agent? Yes, this is very, very common. Um, I would say 99% of the time these days, there is what has come to be known as the call, where an agent will ask to set up a call with you if they are interested in offering representation on your manuscript. I'm sure there are some people that don't do this who just do email or, you know, whatever, um, and those offers are still completely legitimate. People work in different ways. But yes, a phone call is pretty standard. Um, You should ask questions of your agent. There are lots of different resources out there about the kinds of questions that you should ask, and they're all really comprehensive, and I'll try to find some of them and link to them in the show notes. But in general, I think the main things to ask on this phone call um, are specifics about your project. Why? What does the author like about your book? And why do they want to represent it? And what is the vision they have for it? Do, you know, they want to send it out as is? Do they want you to revise? Um, that kind of thing is helpful to know if, if your agent is going to want you to make changes, it's good to know that up front before you sign with them so that you don't sign a an agreement and then have somebody say, I want you to change X, Y, Z. And for you to say, well, that's not what I want to do with the book. It's just better to do that all up front. So ask, you know, why do they want to represent you? What do they like about your story? Where do they see it going? Um, And then also ask about um, things like the agent's style of communication. Uh, Are they phone people? Are they email people? How frequently do they communicate? Um, You know, business-related questions. Ask them, are they editorial or not? Ask them what their commission is. Ask them any questions that you can think of about... Um, how they work, because this is somebody who you're going to be working very closely with, hopefully for a really long time. And there's been a lot of threads um, recently. Um, Beth Phelan did a wonderful Twitter thread about um, being someone's dream agent and how complicated that is. And kind of shooting down the whole idea of dream agents, because ultimately you want someone who's professional, who's good at their work, who understands you and understands your work. Um, and somebody that you can work with, it's a professional relationship. You have to be able to speak, 
to them openly and honestly and, and have the same kind of honesty and openness in return. Um, so yeah, the, the phone interview is standard. There's lots of questions that you should ask. And also if you can't think of all the questions on the phone, cause I know a lot of times authors say that they get really overwhelmed and it's, <laughs> it's kind of like you, you can't think of everything that you want to say in the moment. You can always send follow-up emails. Um, any agent should welcome the opportunity to answer questions, um, that you might have if you can't remember what you want to ask on the phone. And later on the next day, when you're thinking about your conversation, you say, gee, you know, I really wish I'd ask them this, shoot them an email and ask, and they should answer you. Um, if agents don't want to answer questions about how they work, uh, then that I, I would tell you to proceed with caution. This is, you know, the agents know to expect these questions from writers. They welcome them. They should have thorough answers for you. If you ask them a question they don't know the answer to, they should be willing to go find out the answer and let you know. Um, so yes, ask questions, do your research. Yeah, it is. It, I would say it is not just common. It's expected to have a phone interview. I mean, it, you're basically interviewing mm -hmm. each other to see whether or not you're good fit business wise. And if you were somebody who were hiring somebody for your company, well, you weren't, you wouldn't just hire them Without an interview, at least I don't think you would, you're probably going, if you can't meet with them in person, you're probably going to conduct a phone interview with your potential employee just to see if they're a good fit for the culture, if they're not like some secret serial killer or, you know, like you just want to make sure that they're a human being and that you could work with them. Um, a lot of these phone calls don't have to be so formal. You can just... It, it could just be kind of like a get to know you. Like, do we have the same goals? Are we going to get along? Is our chemistry good? Like, all of those things are pretty important to get on a phone call. Not just, I mean, obviously, I would ask business questions. And if you are nervous on the phone, then maybe write down the questions you want to ask first. Just to refer to later. And, um, but, you know, you, like I said, this is a chemistry thing, not just a business thing. It is a business thing, but you want to make sure you're able to work together. Yeah. You have to find the right person. Yeah. So yeah, I think that's for that question. So do you want me to ask the next one? Yeah. I'm currently working. Uh, this is from Megan. Um, I am currently working on a fantasy novel with an internal antagonist. Do you have any advice slash know of books that do it well? I'm not really sure what's meant by an internal antagonist. Maybe an in, well, in my opinion, an internal antagonist is a book that doesn't have an external villain. So, you know, like Harry Potter has Voldemort, which is clearly an, an external villain that they have to fight against. Um, mm -hmm. But there are plenty of books with conflict where it doesn't hinge upon having to fight off a bad person or antagonist oh yeah just internal conflict that the you know protagonist has within themselves that yeah. i get i think i was like i think i was going down like a sci-fi bent where there's like a and you're possessed or something <laughs> like by your your the antagonist is literally internal uh sorry like i said you guys i'm not at my top top brain form wow <laughs> <laughs> Internal conflict. I think there are lots of books that do it really well. Um. So as for stories that do internal conflict well, um, I mean, not to toot my own horn, but mine doesn't have an external antagonist. Not really. <laughs> I mean, my book has an antagonist, and certainly the Goblin King is an antagonist, but the conflict doesn't necessarily arise from him in that he's the evil person, at least in the second half of the book. Spoilers, you guys. I'm um, sorry. The second half of Winter Song, he is not an antagonist insofar as, like, he's not like the Voldemort villain that Liesl has to fight off in order to succeed and save the day. Um, but there, I mean, even, like, or to go back to the example of Beauty... The conflict in that story is not that the beast is an evil person or or a monster in a uh, more metaphorical sense to defeat the antagonist. Like, her conflict comes from, 
I don't know what I feel about him. I don't, you know, like I should probably go back and take care of my family and I'm enjoying myself here and I feel guilty about enjoying myself here. There are all these things here that I've always wanted, but my family I think is struggling. I should probably, like, so there's internal conflict in that way that has, that is circumstantially to do with the the situation she's in with the beast, but he himself is not a villain. So that's, you know... Ultimately, when it comes to conflict, I think even books with external conflict, like Harry Potter and Voldemort, still have internal conflict that these characters have to resolve. I think it's I think it's crucial to have both, because if a character does not have internal conflict or personal stakes or emotional stakes, then I don't think we care. At least I don't. Like, if there's nothing for them to sort of work out within themselves, then I'm sort of like, why am I on board for this? Just because something is evil and you're fighting against evil, that's not necessarily enough for me to necessarily get on board. Mm-hmm. So, I guess we can move on to the next question. All right. The next one, let me just scroll until it shows up there. This is from Emily. I am a commercial producer and I see book trailers becoming popular with publishers. How could I break into that side of publishing? I don't know. Honestly, (laughs) I think book trailers are declining in popularity. I don't see them be, I'm not, I don't see them used particularly in any way as. Yeah. And I think the people that do use them, I think if you were going to try to market yourself, I think you would market yourself to authors and not to publishers. Mm -hmm. I think that there are a lot of times when we have talked before about authors doing some promotion um, for themselves. And that's the kind of thing that an author could do. If you are good at making your own book trailers, you could do that. Or you could hire someone professional like Emily to do that. Um, but I think that more likely you would be your target clients. If you wanted to get into making book trailers, your target clients would be authors themselves and not necessarily publishers, because I don't think that marketing departments are focusing their resources on book trailers. It seems like an extra thing that maybe some authors do for whatever reason. So I guess I would say market to authors and, you know, maybe set up a website and do some, you know, showcase what you can do, put together a little portfolio or gallery or something. Um, you know, but I would target authors, not publishers. I would actually have to agree. I I think the the trailers I've seen publishers make it's it is made by an in house team, but it's usually made by somebody in their marketing department with video skills. It's not necessarily mm-hmm. made by a dedicated like commercial producer of any kind. And if it's not done by an in house digital content person it's probably uh, freelanced or outsourced to a freelancer like yourself so just you know make sure you have a, a portfolio of your work and you know maybe hopefully if you get an author to hire you to make a book trailer for their book that author can recommend your name to the publisher it's much like anything else in this business it's um it's a mix of elbow grease access luck and who you know so, you know, you obviously have to put out good work in order to be hired, but it's also kind of opportunities have to line up in such a way that they would want to hire some, like, a video content producer. I mean, I can't remember the last time I saw a book trailer for a book. The And the only, the last time I saw a book trailer that was, like, a movie trailer type of book trailer as opposed to just sort of, like, video teasers... Um, that just kind of show a little bit of content and, you know, like, for example, The Bells by Danielle Clayton, which is coming out, they have a, a book trailer, sort of, but it's really kind of a trailer of the cover shoot. Like, it's it's video of the cover shoot of that gorgeous cover. 
and then it's kind of used as like a video trailer for the for the book. Um, but the last time I saw like a movie type trailer was um, for Serafina and the Black Cloak by I cannot remember his name, and it's terrible because he's a North Carolina author. But he spent his own money hiring actors, producers, editors, everything. He did it all himself. Maggie Stiefvater has done trailers for her books, which mm-hmm. I love. She's done them herself. They're like, yeah, they're, they're stop motion. Yeah. So, And it wasn't necessarily put out by the publisher themselves. Um, I do believe for Cricket Kingdom's title reveal... Lee hired an outside video company for that. So, you know, it's not like that op- those it's not like those opportunities don't exist, but it's not necessarily going to be coming from the publisher themselves. Um but, you know, you the way you can do it though is you can get your start in a marketing department in publishing and then offer up your skills and be like, "Hey, by the way, this is something else that I can do." Um you know, maybe you guys would utilize this. But everybody in publishing wears multiple hats. I know editors who man the social media feeds for different publishers. Like, in addition to being editors, mm-hmm. they also do, like, social media for their, you know, for the publishers. Yep, the more skills you bring to the table, yep. the better. So, yeah, I, I'm sorry, we can't give you anything more concrete than that, but... As far as I can tell, I don't see a lot of people use book trailers, personally. Okay, so the next question, which probably won't take all that long to answer, um, is... Mm-mm. When emailing a query and pages, what is recommended spacing? Letters single space, pages double, all double? Anything in a Word document, double space. Um, you will probably be putting your actual query in the body of the email, so single space is fine. If you are um, also pasting um, some of your actual writing into the body of the email, so I ask for a query in the first chapter, people paste it in. Um, I don't really care as long as the formatting is legible. If it pastes single space, fine, because I'm only reading a chapter. If it's double space, great. Anything in a Word document is always double spaced. Yep, I agree. In in um in the body of an email, as long as there is a double space between paragraphs, it should be readable. As mm-hmm. long as it's readable, basically, you know, yeah. it could be double space in the body of the email, and that's fine as well. But um, as long as there's a double space between paragraphs, that's fine. And then when it comes to longer content, um, generally double spaced. But as again, as long as it's readable, and it's and it's readable if it's not like long blocks of text. Uh-huh. That's pretty much the only thing you have to worry about. So, all right, moving on to the next question. Um, ooh, we just got a new one from Megan um, uh-huh. as well, so might as well answer that one first because it's actually sort of related to um, what Emily's. Emily's. Do publishing houses retain graphic designers? If so, do you have advice for finding those jobs? Google has been unhelpful. Similar thing. <laughs> Yeah, so there, I mean, publishers have an art department. Yes. And within the art department, those people do various things, Um, you know, depending on the type of books that are being published um, and what the publisher's needs are. um, They are photographers and graphic designers and cover designers, and some of them are illustrators, and, you know, the list goes on and on and on. Um, They are visual artistic design people with a, ver- a variety of talents that I envy because I can't do any of those things. Um, and so those positions within publishing exist. Um, is there a position for just a graphic designer who only does graphic design and doesn't do any of those other types of responsibilities? Um, I'm not certain. I guess it would depend on the house, and my hunch is probably not really. The more you can do, the better. Um, As for finding jobs within an art department uh, at a publisher, I would not Look on Google. I would look on one of the dedicated industry websites. So Publishers Weekly, Publishers Marketplace, Media Bistro, 
um, are all websites that post um, open positions in the publishing industry. And so I would check there. On Publishers Weekly and Publishers Marketplace especially, the majority of the positions are going to be in New York. Mm -hmm. So again, if you're not in New York, uh, it's going to be tough. Um, you know, publishers have offices in other locations, and so it's not, you know, impossible to find a publishing job elsewhere. But again, the industry is centered in New York. It, it thrives in New York. New York is where it's at. Media Bistro um, does have um, a way to search by your location, and they do sometimes have... Um, more offerings outside of New York, but not necessarily strictly at book publishers, you know, the way that you're probably thinking of them. Um, maybe some more creative companies or freelance type things can be found on Media Bistro a lot. Um, so I wouldn't just Google, I wouldn't look, you know, at any of your old regular job search sites. I would look at one of these dedicated industry websites. Yeah. The, yeah, there isn't, um, there's not a necessarily, it's not quite like copy editors um, or video content producers where it's freelance. It's generally an in-house department that they go to for all yeah. their design services. So arts department, some publishers do have a specific dedicated creative services department that does, um, you know, kind of pamphlets or things like that. But for the most part, there is an in-house art department and also within the production department, there are interior designers. So the people who mm -hmm. lay out the text of the book um, for print. So these are, in fact, in-house jobs that do exist in New York City. So unfortunately, I'm not sure I can really help you with <laughs> with trying to find positions elsewhere um, or as a freelance opportunity. All right. So I think we have one more question. We do. Um, so this question, um, is going to be where we're going to be very brutally honest with you when we answer this question. Uh, the question is, how do you tell where the line is when using another culture for diversity's sake slash the cool factor without cultural appropriation? Um, I'm just going to say that diversity is not a trend. You should not ever be using another culture for diversity's sake or for a cool factor in your book. Um, if that is why you are interested in including a culture that is not your own within your story, you should stop what you are doing and you should think very seriously about why you're doing what you're doing and uh, just just pause before going forward because I think you're starting from the wrong place. I think that's not the place that you start from when you include a culture that is not your own in your writing. The question is, why are you using a culture that's not your own? And the un answer yeah. could be that, you know, I'm interested in this practice and this culture and that leads you to do research on it and build a, you know, whatever. There are plenty of reasons to do so, but ask yourself why. Why are you using this, like, this culture that's not your own? And if it's just because, oh, I think it's cool, then you probably shouldn't be using it. Here's the here's what I'm taking as the subtext of the question, and I'm going to be, as Kelly said, brutally honest about it. There is something about this question that seems to me as though you are asking for permission. And just don't. You either have the guts to do it or you don't, right? If you are afraid of being called out for appropriation, you are not ready to do it. Because regardless of whether or not you do your research, you are going to be called out for bad representation, even if you do your best. And that's, you're either going to be able to accept that or you can't, you know, and it, yeah, you either you do it or you don't. You have the guts to pull it off or you don't. And I think if you are going to, to try and attempt that, then do it as respectfully as possible and listen to the criticisms that come your way. But this whole problem with this idea of appropriation. It's also like, there's the flip side of that, which is there are a lot of people who cry a, a cultural appropriation when they're really talking about cultural purity, which I think is nonsense, because that doesn't account for things like cultural exchange or all of colonialism. You know, <laughs> like, um, 
But if you're going to use another culture, just examine why you're doing it. You know, why are you doing it? Is it because you really admire this culture and you want to explore, you know, or use that culture as a mirror for our own or something? Like, there's there's got to be a reason, regardless of what your reasons are, good, bad, or indifferent, you know, just figure out why you're doing it. You know, why the story has to be set here. And then proceed from there. I mean, and if you are asking for permission, then you're not ready to do it. You know, if you're afraid of backlash, then you're not ready to do it. Just, you know, be brave and write what you know to be true. That's kind of all my advice. I have a lot more thoughts, but they're probably not um, something that I'm willing to share on a podcast without a bunch of booze. So, (laughs) yeah, we're not drinking tonight. We're not drinking tonight. No. Um, Is that the last question? I think that's the last one on the hashtag. I don't see any more. Um, So, okay. Then why don't we move on to our other segments? Cool. What have you been reading? Nothing, but I did just get two books that came in from the library, and one is Want by Cindy Pond, which I was talking about last week. Ooh. So that just came through today, and I'm really excited about it. And the other one, I am looking up the author right now. Um, the title is It's Not Like It's a Secret, I believe, um, and I cannot Misa remember. Misa Seguria. There you go. I think I'm sorry, Misa, if I'm pronouncing your name wrong. Um, yeah, so those two just came through today, and I am very excited to get started. But I haven't read anything. I'm just looking forward to reading those. I So the last time I talked about um, starting the Queen's Thief series again by Megan Whalen Turner, and I'm slightly irritated because um, I bought... I actually have the paperback, the original, not the original paperback, but the paperback versions from like 2005 of the first three, um, and I cannot find them, so I bought them for my iPad, and they are corrupted on my iPad, which is really weird, meaning that if I open them, it does not load, and then it oh. and then it kind of screws up everything else on my iPad, and then I have to restart the iPad, but it, it will not let me open the first three books. It will let me open... Conspiracy of Kings and Thick as Thieves, but it won't let me open the first three. So I'm really irritated by this, mostly because I don't know where the paperback versions are at the moment. I do have them in paperback. I just don't know where they are. And I was like, oh, it'd be easier if I just bought them from... Nope. Nope. Technology is supposed to make our lives easier, but often makes it far more complicated. Um, yeah, and also I wanted to read them on my iPad so I could read them at the gym. (laughs) Yeah. Bring them and just kind of set them on the elliptical and then just, you know, Uh read while I'm on the elliptical. And it's harder to do that with a paperback. It won't lie flat. So there's that that thing. Um, so I haven't read anything new. I do have a galley of City of Brass by, I'm going to mispronounce the last name and I do apologize. It's S.A. Chakraborty, I think. This is an adult fantasy novel that's coming out, I think, in the fall. Um, And it's sort of a um, fantasy set in a Middle East-inspired world. And um, I've heard extremely good things about it from my friends who've read it. And I got a galley of it at Y'all West. So I am looking forward to that as well. But I have not read... Aside from my woes with uh, <laughs> with the Queen's Thief series, I haven't actually read anything new. Um, I don't think I've read any new releases since probably since probably since May. I don't think I've read anything new since May. Yeah. So, well, what are we working on? Um, working on work stuff again. Still trying to catch up. I'm behind, 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 and I'm trying so hard to catch up. And, um, you know, everybody who's waiting for something from me is probably sick of hearing that, but it's still the truth. Uh, There are only so many hours in the day, unfortunately. And I am also attending the Chicago Writing Workshop this weekend. Um, I'm very excited. It's my first conference as 
an agent. Um, way, way back in the beginning of my career, I did attend BEA a couple of times. Um, but I essentially, my bosses at literary agencies were just letting me go for the experience. I didn't really have anything to do there. Um, I was just basking in the, you know, horrific glow of the Jared Center, <laughs> <laughs> which is such an evil building. Um, it is like the ninth circle of hell. So this will be the first conference that I am attending as an agent and I am taking pitch appointments all day long, which I'm both excited about and slightly intimidated by. Um, I think originally I was going to be on a panel and then, uh, I sold out of pitch appointments and they asked me to, um, to take more. Uh, and so I agreed to do that. And so now I'm taking pitches in a solid block all morning. And then I have like a half hour lunch and then I'm taking pitches in a solid block all afternoon. So it's going to be a long day, but I'm really, really excited about it. Um, and I've already reached out to all my agent friends who are conference veterans and they've given me all of their tips, um, to bring a portable phone charger and bottles of water and, you know, all this stuff. So I am comfortable, comfortable shoes. So I'm going to be very prepared. I'm really looking forward to it. Um, and my friend Mike is out in Chicago too. So I'm going to be able to hang out with him, which I'm excited about. So what are you working on? I am coming up to the end of book two, um, and also I still working on that secret project, which is now in to my editor. Ooh. Um, and yeah, and she likes it, and so we'll see um, where things go from there. But that's kind of all I can really say about it at the moment. Uh, but I'm uh, aside from that, working on book two, I'm more or less. Getting my health back in order, mm. I think I'd mentioned going back to the gym. Um, for me, gym going to the gym is sort of crucial as an adult, and I didn't, because I hated, you guys, I hated exercising, and I hated working out as a child. I really did. I was, I wasn't bad at PE. I was not unathletic. In fact, I was fairly athletic in that I was pretty competent at sports. I was not great, but neither was I bad. I was always kind of like, and the, towards the beginning of being picked, but more closer to the middle. That's like kind of where I fall in the, like, athletic, athletic abilities scale. Like, um, but I, you know, I was always at least fairly active and I, and I just like this past year, you know, with my day job and writing and doing author stuff, I had no time to take care of myself physically. And, you know, aside from the vanity aspects of, oh, I would like to lose weight or whatever, it was incredibly crucial for me to work out to help me regulate my bipolar disorder. Um, and just, I've been going more or less every day since I quit, um, pretty consistently. And just that I've felt immense, just better yeah. all around, just I sleep better, I eat better, I feel better mood-wise, uh, they feel more regulated. I mean, I still have medication, but, like, I just feel better all around. And so that was kind of, that's, like, my other big project, aside from writing-related stuff, is I am focusing on my health, and, you know, it, I mean, it does suck getting up at 6 in the morning and drag myself to the gym, but, <laughs> um, you know, it is it is always worth it, and every time I leave, I feel a lot better. Yeah. So... That's kind of my, what I'm working on aside from that. Awesome. So, any off-menu recommendations this week? I don't think so, actually. Do I have anything off-menu recommendations? No, I'm pretty much, like, I haven't watched anything new. Mm -hmm. Um, I, you know, I've been working on my secret project and book two, um, podcast wise, I still listen to the same stuff. So nothing new there. I, um, well, this is, this is sort of related to what I'm working on, but, um, is also kind of an off menu recommendation. If we have said before that uh, we don't, neither Kelly and I hide our political biases um, on this podcast, um, but this is not a political podcast, but I am involved 
in um, just a group of YA authors um, and kind of peripherally book-related people. Uh, we are part, we have banded together and putting our energies and ideas into something called Road to 18, which is about the midterm elections coming up in 2018, if you guys are eligible to vote, old enough to vote. Um, so this is us just trying to give information about the civics process, because it does astonish us a little bit how very little people know about how our own government works, regardless of what, where you fall on the political spectrum or your beliefs or ideology, very few people seem to understand even something like how a bill gets made. Mm -hmm. And I was like, did y'all not grow up with Schoolhouse Rock? I know, or we gotta bring that, that back, man. <laughs> I know. I mean, is or is that just something for, for like kids from like the 80s that they grew up with? I don't know. I don't know when they stopped doing Schoolhouse Rock, but I was like, surely you guys know what the process is. Um, and kind of the our informal leader is Celeste Peter, who is a political staffer, and I think she does excellent work. She's just educating incredible. People. Yeah, educating people about the pro political process and everything else. And she's um, got so many, just a lot of experience on the ground working there. But she also has master's degrees in like international relations. So she has a really interesting view on what's going on in the world in addition to domestic policy and stuff. So I do recommend, we do have a Twitter account called uh, Road218, so I can put that a link there, and uh, sort of a related one called I Called My Reps. Uh, just, this is a pro, this is a tip for anybody, regardless, like I said, regardless of what party you support or if you don't support a party. Politicians are beholden to their constituents, and so if you have an opinion, it's their job to listen to you. So, you know, they are elected because you wanted to, or, you know, you voted them there, and if they're not serving their constituents, then they should lose that seat. So, and the best way to make your opinion heard, there are multiple ways you can make your opinion heard. You can call, fax, email. Uh, attend town halls, but to be completely honest, the most effective way is to call. And I know a lot of us have phone anxiety, and I promise you, though, it is relatively simple. Like, once you get into the habit of calling your representatives about whatever issue it is you want to talk to about, um, it gets pretty quick. I make, <laughs> generally, I make like six phone calls to my representatives a day. I make a call to both of my senators, one in their local office or one in their DC office, and then my uh, congresswoman. And I call her local office and her DC office about whatever it is I want to talk about. Um, and every single time a staffer has answered the call, they've been very friendly and very polite, and they promise that they will convey what I, what I said to my elected representative. And they do. That is their job description. You know, that's what they have to do. So don't think that if you make a call, it goes into the void. It it does it does go back to your elected official. Um, so yeah, I mean that's just you know I'm, we're just trying to get people incur like engaged in our political process. And I was always somebody who voted in every presidential election, and kind of half-heartedly maybe made my way to like a midterm election every once in a while. Yeah, me too. But, but it's but very I'm, different now. It is different now, and I also think it just behooves us to be better engaged citizens in our government because we sh it's a democracy, or at least here in the U.S., it is a uh, democratic republic, so we should have a say about how things are run. And the one thing that we do try to fight in this group is apathy, you know, like, oh, I can't affect any change, so why should I bother? Um, ignorance, which is, I don't know how this process works. There's a lot of bad information out there, you guys. Yeah. Like, that your sources. I'm super guilty of it. I slam on the retweet button so often without actually stopping to see where I'm getting my information from. And it's something that I've been trying really, really hard to work on because that's how, you know, information spreads. And if it's wrong and factually incorrect, then that doesn't do anyone any good. And I think just being skeptical overall of information, even if it does come from vetted sources, because even vetted sources do have a bias or a point of view, nothing is free of bias. So interrogate that bias and kind of take that into account when you're taking that information in. Um, and also just 
look up people's credentials. You know, when you're in the political process, that's called opposition research. Mm -hmm. And I'm not saying you should conduct opposition research on everybody, but I'm just saying if you see punditry, Twitter punditry, on you know maybe vet and see where why their opinion matters because if they're just like if they if they don't work for a respective news organization or if they don't have history at a political think tank or anything you know you can kind of look at and if you just even if you just look at their twitter bio and see where they where they write for where their opinions come from just you know even if you agree with what they say maybe just take that analysis with a grain you should take all analysis with a grain of salt frankly um analysis is always going to be just that analysis opinion it's not going to be facts as they are so that is my offer many recommendations sorry to get all political on y'all but don't be sorry <laughs> it is it is something that does take up a lot of my time aside from writing um it is something that i am very i used to not be passionate about um civic engagement and i mean civic engagement because this is we like i said we live in this country so we should have a say on how it's run so that's that's it that is all for this week next week we are going to finally be doing our third query critique so you have a couple more days to try to get in your queries at the last minute if you can uh but i'm really looking forward to that those are always a lot of fun so as always if you want more please subscribe via itunes stitcher podcast pickle or your podcast provider of choice also if you like us please rate and review when you get a chance as it helps other listeners find the podcast yes please 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 rate us and review us we love 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 reading what you guys write and we appreciate because we've gotten uh some new ratings and we always appreciate those but we also like the reviews (laughs) just just putting it out there (laughs) (laughs) put what you want out into the universe and it will come to you If you want more pub crawl goodness, and of course you do, you can go to our website, publishingcrawl.com, where we have many more posts and articles about various aspects of reading, writing, and the publishing industry. You can also follow us on Twitter at pubcrawlblog, as well as on Tumblr, Facebook, and Instagram at publishingcrawl. You can follow me, Kelly, at bookishchick on Twitter or Instagram, or my website, penandparsley.com. And you can follow me, JJ, at SJ Jones, that's S-J-A-E-J-O-N-E-S, on Twitter or my website, sjjones.com. Our theme music is Quirky Dog by Kevin McLeod, and our logo is designed by Aaron Bowman, author of Retribution Rails, forthcoming November 7th. If you have any further questions, comments, or feedback, feel free to email us at publishingcrawl at gmail.com or send us an ask through Tumblr. Thank you so much for listening. Bye. Bye. talking amongst yourselves and by yourselves I mean just you (laughs) (laughs) I'm talking I'm talking I'm talking